On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Crawford Gribben about his brand new book, Survival and Resistance in Evangelical America. So we cover topics like just what is Christian Reconstruction? Who are these people? Do they have unified beliefs that truly shape their thoughts on eschatology, on government, on education, on media? How did this group really emerge and how has it changed over time? What kind of cultural reach do they have as a group and what potential future impact might they have and much more? As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, you can hit us up, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that's devoted to thinking, and we want to have thinking that is permeated by an intellectual culture of charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism, all while we think. And today on the podcast, we have a previous guest, Dr. Crawford Gribben, and we're going to talk about his brand new book, Survival and Resistance in Evangelical America. I just got this copy a couple of days ago. Brandon just got his, and I think both of us have made our way through a good portion of it and have found it absolutely fascinating. I think the topic in general is fascinating. So I'm really looking forward to just understanding some of the complexities, some of the origin story, and how exactly this movement has really emerged. I think even in my own personal experience, I've begun to see this this movement really blossom. So it's just kind of intriguing and interesting to understand some of the historical outworkings of it. And I know, Dr. Gribben, you've done a bunch of I guess, in-person interviews and just talking with a lot of people about it. So I'm looking forward to chatting about it. But before we do jump into the topic as it is, I do want you to reintroduce yourself to some of our listeners. Those who've listened in the past, they were, you did an episode with us on John Owen. I think it was well, very well received. One of our most top episodes ever. I think just a fascinating figure in himself. But I think this one for me is even more fascinating because it's so close in time to where I'm at. It's like, it's actually unfolding before my own eyes. So for those who aren't familiar with you, uh, give us a little bit of background. And then what is it that drew you to actually studying this particular movement? Well, Jordan, Brandon, thanks very much for the invitation to come back onto the show. Really appreciate it. And uh, for your interest in the book as well. My background is that I teach uh, history at Queen's University Belfast, which is a university in Northern Ireland, uh, which is part of the UK still, only just maybe. Um, And um, I've been interested in this movement really for, I suppose, about 25 years, since the mid-1990s, when I started um, my PhD work uh, in Glasgow on the topic of Puritan millennialism. And One of the things I did uh, quite a lot when I was in Glasgow at that point was I went across to visit a theological bookshop in Edinburgh, um, which had a brilliant secondhand section. um, And, you know, it was just a great way to spend a Saturday afternoon, take the train to Edinburgh, browse the bookshelves, see a couple of friends, come home with a much heavier bag uh, than you left the house with. Uh, But one Saturday when I was across in Edinburgh at the bookshop, I literally kicked a pile of magazines that were lying on the floor. And it was quite a large pile. These were sample magazines, uh, samples of a magazine called Credenda Agenda, Things to Believe, Things to Do, which was at that point a very young magazine edited by Doug Wilson 
and a group of other people in his church or associated with his church up in Moscow, Idaho. And, you know, it made for pretty incredible reading for, for all kinds of reasons. Um, I was reading some pretty stodgy Puritan theology by day. And then at night, I would sort of delve into Credenda Agenda and find um, similar kinds of arguments being made, but with a degree of wit, uh, often very caustic wit, um, and up-to-dateness, uh, if, if that's a word or a series of words, uh, that, that really seemed to bring this Puritan millennial tradition um, to, it really, it really seemed to enliven it. And so uh, as I finished my PhD, the PhD was in Puritan views of the end times and remained interested in Puritanism. I've talked about that before. Um, but I also remained interested in the long history of um, evangelical views of the millennium. And so I, I kept paying attention to this group um, that was moving in a very explicitly post-millennial direction and was also working to create the community and the institutions that would make sense of that post-millennial hope. So as I subscribed to the magazine, it was free. I'm very fond of free subscriptions. As I subscribed to the magazine, I was, you know, it was relatively easy then to see how it was growing. They began by establishing a school, a K K-12 school. They then moved from that to establish a liberal arts college uh, in Moscow, Idaho, a college called New St. Andrews um, College. Um, they've moved more recently to establish a, a, a musical conservatory for, for musical studies. Um, the, the, the church moved from being a sort of fairly eclectic evangelical church called Community Evangelical Fellowship to become a much more obviously but liturgically eclectic reformed church called Christ Church or Christ Kirk uh, in Moscow, Idaho. And all of that was happening as the community's profile was building and building, um, obviously becoming more and more successful, more and more people flocking to be part of this. So I was I was aware of all that and fascinated by how that was working out and some of the ideas that were being promoted and circulated within and from that group. But then around about 2007, 2008, I was also developing an interest in some of the online cultures to do with American survivalism. Um, and, and one of the blogs that's very, very prominent in that culture is a blog called survivalblog.com, which is uh, read, uh, led by a man who identifies as a Reformed Baptist called James Wesley Rawls. Now, James Wesley Rawls, a bit like Doug Wilson, who's the leader of the Moscow group, James Wesley Rawls is also quite an extraordinary entrepreneur, set up this uh, survivalblog.com, hundreds of thousands of unique hits every month. Um, it, it, um, he, he then began to publish novels, um, which um, appeared as a kind of a series, but they all, they all were based around the same plot hooks. The idea that, that he was imagining was that America would descend into chaos, some kind of economic chaos, hyperinflation, something like that. Uh, and that the only people who would survive the chaos, the social chaos that would ensue, were people who would be able to make their way to safe places that they had prepared to survive the chaos. And in a number of those novels, the safe places were, were to be found in the Pacific Northwest and specifically North Idaho. And in fact, in one of those novels, uh, the characters moved to Moscow, Idaho, and actually joined Doug Wilson's church. So it was this amazing crossover between the, the world of reality in Moscow, Idaho, and this um, quasi-militia world, let's say, I'm not quite sure what the best way is to describe it, but it's it's kind of it's not not promoting illegal activities. Don't get me wrong, um, but it, but it's you know it's there's a lot of emphasis in that in that other group in the James Wesley Rawls group, 
on arms procurement, um, weapons training, you know, all of those kinds of Second Amendment kind of issues. But but here was a point where the two worlds crossed over, and that that I, f- I found extremely intriguing. Um, and so that that crossover point was, I suppose, the origin for the book. And coincidentally, uh, or providentially, depending on your view of uh, divine sovereignty, at the very same point, uh, I was working in Trinity College Dublin with a good friend of mine who's since moved to Glasgow uh, called Scott Spurlock. And Scott and I, um, Scott is from the North Idaho area, and Scott and I really wanted to go on a road trip to explore this. But to justify the road trip, and to get funding to pay for it, because, I mean, who wants to go on a holiday they pay for themselves? We had to make it out to be a research project. So we made it out to be a research project. Um, we spent a good bit of the summer of 2015 driving around. I went back in the summer of 2016 to do some follow-up interviews. We'd already done some interviews by telephone. We continued to stay in touch, touch, uh, touch with some people. And, uh, you know, a number of years later, this book then was the result. And, and just as a reminder... I- in the first couple of pages, I'm reading this and I find out you have another book uh, that's, you mentioned just your interest in millennial views and, and things in an evangelical culture, this left behind of the evangelical imagination, which that looks fascinating to me too. So I'll plug that book as well uh, as something that would be of interest to probably a significant chunk of our listeners who find all of this really, really interesting. Well, that's great, Jordan. If I can just follow up with you, I did two books in the Left Behind novels. One of them, uh, published by Oxford University Press, is a long history of rapture fiction. It's called Writing the Rapture, Prophecy Fiction in Evangelical America. I think that came out in 2009. But then the book you mentioned is written specifically for Christians. uh, And it's called uh, Rapture Fiction and the Evangelical Crisis. And it came out, I think, about 2004. But I suppose the, the really key thing to, to, for, for listeners to get about this commu- the, the two communities I've mentioned is that they are really, really invested in um, communicating their ideas and they're communicating their ideas through novels, um, through, uh, um, through, through various kinds of books about marriage, let's say, or church practice or theology. But they're also communicating their ideas through curricula for homeschool um, in, in the form of poetry um, in web pages, and I think um, one of the most interesting, one of the most interesting ways that they are communicating uh, their ideas um, is through a talk show, which is hosted on Amazon Prime uh, by Doug Wilson. So, um, you know, for, for all that these groups may appear somewhat outre or marginal, uh, in, in fact, within the last couple of years, especially, they have developed a cultural purchase that I think they never had before, and I think that's allowing them both to um, circulate these these ideas in very considerable ways, while also addressing new kinds of audiences. And I'm I'm really curious to see how those two things uh, will combine together to to, to either promote or indeed change some of the things that are happening now. Mm. So Dr. Gribben, the the book that we're discussing today, the title is Survival and Resistance in Evangelical America. And the subtitle is... Christian Reconstruction in the Pacific Northwest. So I think a, maybe a good place to go now is is that 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 phrase Christian Reconstruction. Maybe at a high level and broad strokes, explain explain to us what Christian Reconstruction is. Can we trace that back to to one founder and and what are the unified beliefs that that come together to make Christian Reconstruction? Thanks, Brandon. That, 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 that's a really great question. Christian Reconstruction is is a, a movement that has grown within. Reformed Protestantism, especially among Presbyterians, though increasingly 
interestingly among Baptists in the last couple of years. But a movement among Reformed Reformed um, Presbyterians in the main that thinks very, very carefully about social theory. So Christian Reconstructionists look at the world since the 1960s, a world in which there's been extraordinary changes. Um, almost all of them they would see for the worse. Um, but but they they want then to think about what the Bible says about society. In other words, does the Bible have any answers for some of the pressing social questions that Christians debate? And in fact, that um, lots of people debate whether they're Christians or not. Uh, and the Christian Reconstructionists want to say, yes, the Bible does in fact address virtually every aspect of human life. Um, so they, 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 they look at the, the laws of Moses and some of them, most of them perhaps, are a bit uncomfortable with the very familiar threefold division of the law of Moses into moral, ceremonial and judicial. And they recognize, I think rightly, that when the New Testament speaks about the law of Moses, it does so as a chunk rather than as a kind of a, a part of a chunk. Uh, and, and and so they want to argue that when Jesus says, um, I've come to fulfill the law, uh, that, that that doesn't mean that the law is abandoned or pushed to one side, uh, either for the individual believer or for the Christian family or for a Christian congregation or indeed for the state. And they, they want then to, to examine um, the laws of Moses, the Old Testament laws, not just for, for in matters of personal guidance, should I murder someone or not, um, but but also in terms of of national guidance, what should a state be like? What, by what principles should a state be organised? How should an economy work? Uh, and what are the principles that will hold a culture together successfully, and allow that culture to be transmitted from one generation to the next in a healthy, sustainable way? So, their idea is really to take uh, the whole of the Bible for the whole of the Christian life, and. Uh, they, they they want to you know they want to look to the laws of Moses, but indeed to to biblical principles from across the canon, as I suppose rules of engagement for how they might want to to see uh, America reshaped according to divine law. So in a way, the Reconstructionists are a bit more honest, a bit more thoughtful than most American evangelicals are when they talk when they use language like let's reclaim america for god or or words to that effect because often when you push people who make those kinds of statements they don't really know what principles they want to apply um often it's just some kind of you know reheated 1950s conservatism but actually the reconstructionists are a bit more thoughtful in that and they say well actually there are principles we've been laying them out since the mid 1960s uh, and and you know here are scores of books that makes sense of this. That, that makes sense of this question. Should we have an army? Um, if so, what should the purpose of that army be? Um, should we have taxation? If so, what should the maximum level of taxation be? Should we have prisons? They say no. We should not have prisons. And you know, uh, they, they argue that taxation should never be more than ten percent. You know, all of these kinds of positions. Um, and on the face of it, you might think this. Um, th these kinds of positions are, you know, extremely progressive positions that you might hear in certain sections of the left, uh, and I suppose there are echoes of, of 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 those kinds of arguments. But but when you examine some of these statements, the reason why taxation should never be more than ten percent is because the state can never demand more of an individual than God does, and so that's an application of the tithe principle. Or you know, when 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 the state abolishes prisons, the reason why it can abolish prisons is because it has massively extended the, the range of capital crimes to encompass the first seven of the Ten Commandments. 
and because those who, who have committed crimes that are not capital crimes are then um, reduced or are then made to engage in some form of restitution for whatever property um, they or, or goods they have they have taken. So I think those, Brandon, are some of the big ideas of Christian Reconstruction. It's about the whole of the Bible for the whole of the Christian life, but not just the Christian life of the individual, also the Christian life of the church and of the state. And I think that's what makes the movement so controversial is, you know, I, th I think lots of Christians, lots of Reformed Christians are quite happy to look to the Mosaic law for matters of personal guidance, perhaps even matters of, of guidance for, for the church or for Christian ethics generally. But they get very, very squiffy when um, those the, the mosaic law is also being applied to the state as a whole. So this group in particular, the one in the Pacific Northwest, it seems that they also have some unique views on like education and media um, beyond just government and type type things is that. What is it that makes the, those aspects unique for this group? That's an interesting question, uh, Jordan. Yeah, I, I mean, I've I've used the language of this group in the singular, and I suppose I should qualify that immediately by saying that while there are a number of very major players within this movement, it might not actually be a movement. It might be a sequence of movements that marches more or less in tandem, but with slightly different agendas, um, lots of common principles, but with slightly different agendas, slightly different styles. Um, some of them, it's fair to say, I think, fairly paranoid about their place in wider society. Others of them, I think, fair to say, very ambitious about what they might want to achieve in wider society. So th there are lots of groups. It's a very decentralized movement. Um, I, I think there is a movement of people up to the Pacific Northwest, a kind of strategic relocation, a migration movement, but it's not it's not a single it's not a single thing headed by a single individual. But the, there is a very significant group um, that meets that's centered, I suppose, mostly in Moscow, Idaho, led by Doug Wilson, who I mentioned before. So uh, yes, I think they are distinct from the broader movement of Christian Reconstruction. Um, D Doug Wilson at various times has hesitated over whether he wants to describe himself as a Christian Reconstructionist. And certainly in, in one of the conversations we had with him, he said he'd be happier thinking of himself as a Reconstructionist 0.5 than as a Reconstructionist 2.0, if that makes sense. Um, so he's, I mean, he, he's certainly very open about his appreciation of Rushduni, uh, who is R.J. Rushduni, is one of the principal theorists of, of this movement from the 1960s until his death in the early 2000s. Um, the, the, the Rushduni, the Rushduniites, if, you, if that's a, a way to describe them, they, they, they were um, very, very intellectual, um, very focused on preparing academic or semi-academic publications, and, you know, I think they thought themselves quite a lot as a, a kind of a think tank producing resources for other people to use. The group that Doug Wilson is associated with in Moscow, Idaho, is a very rich, very versatile, very ambitious, very productive, extremely energetic group of, of several thousand. Uh, their number now makes up around 10% of the permanent population of that town. So they've really expanded over time to become a very significant part of local life. Um, while they are um, interested in producing academic work, and in fact might even be more um, more successful in producing academic work than um, the, the, the earlier generation of Reconstructionists, 
associated with R.J. Rushdini. They're also extremely successful at communicating the core ideas of that literature in all kinds of popular forms. So, as I mentioned before, you know, in books about marriage and popular apologetics books, in debates, in, in film, um, and I think, as I mentioned also before, in novels and in a talk show on Amazon Prime. So they're very committed to utilising media. And I suppose this is maybe one of the, 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 the ironies or paradoxes of the movement, that it's a movement that critiques American modernity using the very tools of, of American modernity to do so. Mm. Um, and in terms of, of education, um, this is a group that has been committed to Christian education since it began uh, in the 1980s. In fact, the group was committed to Christian education before it was ever a group that was influenced by Reformed theology or even by Reconstructionist writers. Um, so back in the 1980s was when they began their K-12 school. Um, in the mid-90s, they were moving to um, um, establish this uh, liberal arts college, New St Andrews College, and so on. And, you know, in terms of education, I think they've been extremely successful. Uh, a number of their graduates have gone into um, Ivy League schools or some of the top European universities. And, um, you know, they, they, you see their names in academic lights now. So the school, the Liberal Arts College, obviously offers a very credible uh, education. And um, with the expansion of its influence and the expansion of the influence of this group through media, and I think now, especially through the talk show on Amazon Prime, um, I think this group is really poised to influence the direction of evangelicalism, I think, in some very significant ways. You mentioned that Rawls is a Reformed Baptist and that the last couple of years, um, Baptists have become more involved in this movement. Do you, as a historian, do you do you have any any theories as to why Baptists have become more attracted to this movement in recent years? Because it just doesn't seem to map on as well with with <laughs> with Baptist thought um, as it would maybe more traditional reform thought, though I guess it doesn't map on there well either because I think, if I'm understanding you correctly, they're just rejecting um, general equity as it's laid out in the Westminster Confession because they don't even buy into the threefold division. So they, they want the, the full Mosaic law to be used um, for the, purposes of government but anyhow i'm just curious about the the that and the and the baptist part of it that's yeah th th those are two really interesting um issues brandon i think to, to to just to pursue very quickly the point about general equity in the westminster confession i think that the the um the, the reformed presbyterians who are part of this movement absolutely believe in general equity but the, okay. but the question is how do they define it okay so um um, that the, the, there is no there is no attempt in this movement, as far as I know, to um, reject or refine or adapt any of the terms of the Westminster Confession. There are lots of debates about what the Westminster Confession is teaching or what it means, uh, but but no one is saying we need to change this. Okay. So I, I think that, that there's there's there's, there's a, a kind of a curiosity about this. Uh, you, you're right, I think, that the um, the debate about general equity really goes back to the 1640s. And, you know, I think through the history of Presbyterianism, you get um, Reformed Christians moving with very different definitions of what general equity actually means. Uh, in the 1640s, for example, 1650s, Scottish Covenanters, English Cromwellians um, are absolutely signing up to the idea of general equity. But, but what they do then is they then look at the judicial laws of, of Deuteronomy, let's say, to try to figure out which 
sexual crimes should be punished and indeed how they should be punished, which is why in the 1640s and 50s, you've got this rash of uh, legislation about about adultery, which in England becomes a capital offence. So um, the general equity question, I think, is really interesting. We could you know, talk more about that if you want to. But the, the other question, Brandon, you asked is about why Baptists are interested in this. And that, I think, is difficult to know. Um, there have always been Baptists who've been interested in Reconstructionist ideas. I think you're right that there's a more obvious link between Presbyterian theology and Reconstruction than there is between Baptist theology and, Recon and Reconstruction, even between Reformed Baptist theology and Reconstruction. I think Baptists traditionally have had a view of the state that wants to have a much greater um, distance between what the principles in which the church is organised and the principles in which the state is organised. Presbyterians, certainly in my part of the world, have always been much more comfortable with the idea that there should be a state church, for example. Baptists have never argued for that, as far as I know. There's maybe, maybe exceptions, but as far as I know, uh, that is the case. So, so you raise the very interesting puzzle then of why are Baptists becoming interested in this now? And I don't know uh, is the honest answer, except that I think that the events of the last five years, let's say, in American politics and culture generally, have turned up the heat on various kinds of conservative Christian communities in such a way that they might be looking for answers or solutions to their problems that are a bit more radical than they might have considered previously. So I think it, it's fine for Baptists to say, for example, that the church and state should be separate as long as they're basically happy with the direction of the state. But once the state starts moving in a direction that makes them feel uncomfortable or even threatened, as seems in some cases to be the case, then, you know, they, they tune into Survival Blog, they tune into Amazon Prime talk shows, and they realise that there's actually energetic, creative communities out there which are appealing for people to come and help them to build up a much more familiar Christian civilization at a local level. So not, not trying to score top-down political points, not trying to capture the White House and then impose some kind of top-down reformation. These groups have given up on that. They think that's a waste of time. What they're trying to do is um, to pursue the old Reconstructionist ideal, which is actually the old evangelical ideal of personal transformation, followed by family transformation, followed by church transformation, and gradually, as the salt and light of families and churches permeates the environment in which they are placed, the county begins to change its character, the state begins to change its character, and ultimately, um, as a consequence of this massive revival of evangelical Protestantism, the federal state itself uh, begins to change. So it's much more organic, it's much more, it's much more long-term, it's based on extraordinary confidence in long-term growth. But actually, it's the kind of confidence in long-term growth you might have if you were living in a small town in North Idaho where 10% and growing of the local population is an active, covenanted member of a Reformed church that holds exactly to these ideals of seeing the whole of the Bible as the way of addressing not just the, the whole of the Christian life, but the very life of the culture, the very life of the state. So, Brandon, you know, you mentioned the the influence this is, seems to have on Baptist culture even now. 
and how interesting that is. It, it seems that there is a significant cultural reach that this ideal has now. And I think we were talking before the interview started just about how, to some degree, this is, you know, it's been built over decades of period of time, and that's starting to manifest some of its influence now. But I'm wondering how much of this is due just to particular forms of media being very good at uh, promoting their views in certain formats. I mean, I think Liberty University has this massive sprawling online program. And I think part of that's just due to the fact that they started doing a pseudo online program before anybody else. So is there to some degree, it's just they've been developing this type of media before everybody else. And so they have more of an influence that or what does that look like? Yeah, that, that's a really interesting question. Um, and, you know, the, the, the Doug Wilson group in Moscow, Idaho, does often get criticized for preferring to publish through their own publisher, Canon Press, than for going to other publishers, um, you know, Erdman's or Crossway or, you know, whoever it might be that might also circulate within the kinds of community that they want to reach. I think, I mean, I think that's a really interesting question. Um when in in one of the conversations I had with Doug Wilson, we we talked about why he chose or why the early core of the group chose to 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 move to Moscow to start the work there. And uh, Doug Wilson's father, Jim Wilson, an elderly man uh, who has written a number of books, um, was one of, I think was was probably the most influential theorist of why they chose to base themselves in that location. Jim Wilson has a background, I think, in the army, certainly some branch of the American military. But he he famously argued that um, if, if you want to achieve maximum Christian influence as an evangelist, you want to base your efforts in a location that is strategic and achievable. So there's no point aiming for a strategic city like Chicago. It's not achievable. There's no point aiming for just any kind of achievable small town, it might not be strategic. So you want to make your target area strategic and achievable. So Moscow, Idaho, small town, but it's got two university campuses. Um, it, well, it's got the University of, uh, of Idaho, the Moscow campus, and just two or three miles over the state border, it's got uh, in Pullman, which is the adjacent town, it's got um, Washington State University. So in terms of cultural reach, massive. Um, what Doug Wilson said to me was that the, the decision to stay in Moscow was made possible by desktop sub publishing software because they could stay in Moscow and produce Credenda Agenda to you know pretty high quality production that was circulating completely free in 22,000 copies per issue by the end of the 1990s. That was made possible by, by, by desktop publishing um, software. And so it was a do-it-yourself culture. So there was no... Nobody was screening their ideas. You know, there were no checks and balances. There was no lengthy peer review. They could, they could work as a group, establish their ideas, and communicate them fast and effectively. Now, I'm not sure where the funding was coming from that, that was allowing them to circulate 22,000 copies of every issue. But, I mean, certainly here in Ireland, I was getting copies of it, um, which, you know, which I've kept and, 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 uh, and which turned out to be extremely useful for, for, for writing this book. Then Canon Press was established. Canon Press, whenever we visited Canon Press in 2015, had the only American example, the only example in North America of a printing machine that allowed you to put in 
uh, blocks of paper at one end and turn out with fully bound books at the other. And in fact, not only was it the only example of this machine in America, they also it, it could only be serviced by an engineer that they flew across from Europe uh, to take care of it. Extraordinary. So um, through, I think throughout their history, this group has had a commitment to being the first to do things, to be the fastest to do things. What that's allowed them to do is get their views out you know, with a, you know, with extreme effectiveness. I'll give you another example of that. Um, on the website of Christianity Today, back in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, um, Doug Wilson began debating Christopher Hitchens uh, in a sequence of blogs. Christopher Hitchens, the great uh, polemicist, contrarian um, writer, uh, who, who, who tragically died a number of years after that. But um, be, because Doug Wilson was able then to, to um, utilise... Uh, the, the public, the publishing resources of Canon Press. He was able then to take those blog posts that he and Christopher Hitchens put together, and create a book which Canon Press organised, and then to publicise the book, organise a lecture tour, a debate tour, which Christopher Hitchens and he went on. In fact, you can still see videos of that. I think it's called Collision um, on 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 YouTube. So you know, one thing leads to another. Always leveraging one advantage after another to achieve maximum media saturation. Now, I think it's also true to say that having established their reputations through Canon Press, uh, a number of the writers associated with this movement have indeed moved on to publish with um, very, very well-known uh, publishers, not religious publishers, but publishers like Penguin, uh, Random House, Simon Schuster, Oxford University Press, and so on. So in a way, the, the, the momentum that they generated through doing their own publication work in-house allowed them to jump the tier of um, the the gatekeepers of evangelical culture, you know, the big publishers, Baker, you know, uh, Robin and Holman, all of these publishers, IVP. They, they jump that level um, with one or two exceptions. They jump that level and move immediately to uh, the top, um, you know, New York publishing um, imprints. So I think they've been extremely successful at doing that. And often, as you said, Jordan, because they're the first to get in on the action. Let's let's talk for a moment about the the eschatological piece of all this. Um, so you mentioned a, a few minutes ago how they have this this confidence in a long term growth of um, of the gospel and God's kingdom. Um, so maybe help us untangle the relationship between Reconstruction and post millennialism. Because if I'm understanding and correct me if I'm wrong here, all all Reconstructionists would be post millennials, but but not all post millennials are going to be Christian Reconstructionists. So um, help us untangle that relationship between Reconstruction and post millennialism. Yeah, that that's a that's a great question, Brandon. There is a relationship between Reconstruction ideas and post millennialism. I think there are Reconstructionists who are not post millennial. Okay. Um, they don't, but I think you're right. They, they, they're pretty marginal. Um, I have met, um, I have met some, but they, they they might they might not prefer to use the term reconstructionist. They might prefer to use the term theonomist or, or something like that. Um, I mean, at, at the end of the day, Brandon, even even premillennialists uh, become theonomists whenever they think about the conditions of the millennium. Um, mm -hmm. Israel in the millennium will be under the Mosaic law. Right. So right. you know. So so in in a way, in a way, lots of different kinds of evangelical eschatological options lead up to um, the the some kind of state overseen implementation of um, mosaic judicial law in some way or other. 
Um, in fact, I, you, you know what? You, you could even argue that dispensationalists go further than post-millennial reconstructionists because they are also expecting the liturgical laws of Moses to be brought back into play in a future millennium, whereas reconstructionists who are post-millennialists will not be arguing for that. So that caveat aside, there is a relationship between reconstruction uh, ideas and post-millennialism, um, largely because I think R.J. Rushduni, who was the sort of premier early theologian of the Reconstructionist movement was the first person, I think, to seriously attempt to revive post-millennial hopes after um, their apparent extinction um, at the end of World War I. So, you know, evangelicals through the 19th century were strongly post-millennial. Uh, after the American Civil War, and especially after World War I, it became really implausible to entertain hopes that the world was somehow getting better. So, Early, well, late 1960s, early 1970s, R.J. Rushduni began virtually single-handedly rereading Revelation and Daniel, arguing that, in fact, the direction of history um, is, is, is a positive story of the growth of the gospel. Interminably, inviolably, cannot be contested, he thought. Um, the, 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 the story of history was a story of how the 120 people in the upper room in the day of Pentecost grow to include virtually everybody alive on the face of planet earth um so that 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 confidence then led him to ask questions well what would the world look like if the majority population of a country or indeed of the globe were evangelical christians what kind of society would they want what principles would they want to organize that society and you know i think that's a conversation that is not often had. It tends to, you know, people tend to make assumptions about what they're working for. You know, when evangelicals get involved in political action or, or activism, they don't often think out what principles they're actually applying. But he did, and and he, you know, he, he came up with the view that well, obviously, you know, we would want to make abortion illegal, but how would we punish it? Um, what what else would we want to make illegal? Um, would would there be speeding fines? What about the war on drugs? Does the Bible support war on drugs? Not really. So, uh, you know, so so as he began to develop his thinking, it looked on the one hand extremely libertarian, on the other hand extremely theocratic. And that, that it's not quite an instability, but that movement between liber the libertarian impulse and the almost theocratic, the theocracy, is, it's not theocracy, but the almost theocratic element of this I think has has resonated through this, and I think that I think it explains why reconstruction appeals to different kinds of people for different kinds of of, of, of reasons. Um, but yeah, I think you're right, Brandon. Fundamentally, while there are caveats, fundamentally, reconstruction is a movement that does expect the world to be transformed by the gospel, um, which is a position that we would recognise as post-millennialism. But it also believes that that transformation will have very, very significant social and cultural effects, which they will measure against the expectations set up by the reading of Mosaic judicial legislation. That that tension between the libertarian impulse and the the theocratic, theonomic um, beliefs is just fascinating because it seems like you're a libertarian like until you get all the power, and then and then the libertarianism goes out the window and. And now you you just totally change things. So it's not really a principled libertarianism, I don't guess. It's more of just a 
a practical, this is how we have to live until we get the power. That's what it seems to me, but maybe I'm misreading it. I don't know. No, I mean, I think it's complicated. I think I think that it's both principled and pragmatic. So it's principled in the sense that they're arguing that loads of the laws that we have at the moment should just be scrapped. Yeah. yeah. So you know, th- th- there is no biblical foundation for the war on, for, for the war on drugs. There's no biblical foundation for a you know for for speed limits. Uh, you know, th- there is no biblical foundation for limiting where you can smoke a cigarette. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of the writers would say it's absolutely extraordinary that the state tells you you cannot smoke a cigarette in a taxi while also legitimizing abortion on an industrial scale. You know, so the, so there is this really, I think, deep-seated DNA libertarianism that runs through this. But I think you're right. So it's principled, but it's also pragmatic. And it's pragmatic in the sense that, yes, when Christian influence, uh, as they expect, um, does reach that tipping point. Um, once it reaches that tipping point, um, the politics um, that will be advanced by the new majority of Christian voters will be equally as compulsive as the kind of politics that's currently advanced by the majority of voters who are not Christians. In other words, they recognise politics is always about power. It's always about power. The The, the difference is uh, you know, the, the important thing to know is whether you're subject to that power or whether you're exercising that power. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, they feel very much subject to alien power, but they anticipate that at some point in the future, um, that you know, the, 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 a Christian civilization will almost be created um, as the number of evangelical conversions continue. That's their revivalism. That's their post-millennialism speaking. But then their politics kick in and says, therefore, you know, when there's a 50% plus one, of Christian voters voting in line with biblical expectations, then those who are not um, evangelical Christians um, should really be, you know, expecting the kind of state um, that's a bit like the present state, but with Christian values. However, they would also they would also want to say that in many cases, uh, those who find themselves coerced, if you like, uh, under a new Christian state, would actually be much freer than anyone is at the moment because tranches of law would simply be swept away. Now, I think if you are, for example, a practicing Hindu, uh, um, hoping to continue to practice your Hindu faith in public, uh, you might not find that argument terribly persuasive. You might not feel that you're going to have lots more freedom in a Christian American Republic. Um, But that's the argument I think they want to, they they want to take. You know, there, there's a, there's a lot of things that I'd like to ask you and talk to you about. Uh, two questions that I have, and you can pick which one you find more interesting. Uh, one is, you mentioned in your introduction how a lot of this, I guess, reconstruction, or just maybe it's in evangelical ethos in general, is interested in creating magazines, novels, uh, manuals, websites that emphasize their marginal status. Yeah. And I've wondered if... Is it just America or the current, I guess, political structure that most countries are in that have almost created the context for this type of uh, thinking where we want to be marginalized? We almost want to just like capitalize and promote our marginalized status and our need to resist. And it seems that that is just across the board. Everybody wants to do that. And then the second question I have, and maybe it's somewhat related, is if there is a historical 
or even a confessional tradition that actually supports this type of Christian reconstruction. So maybe both of them are just a little bit of thinking, what is it, or is there a historical tradition, or is it just uniquely this own contemporary context that has made yeah. this possible? Yeah, that's that, that's interesting. I, I mean, the question about is there a confessional tradition absolutely depends on who you ask. The answer to that question depends on who you ask. Uh, if, if you ask uh, a, a typical uh, member of one of these congregations, they will say, absolutely, there's a confessional tradition, and it's the Westminster Confession. And in fact, they would argue that um, the, the American adaption of, well, I, I'm not sure that the folk in Moscow would argue this, but certainly some of the people that we spoke to would argue this. They would argue that when the American Presbyterian Church adapted the Westminster Confession in the 17... 80s was or 1770s can't quite remember uh, one of the things that they did was to reject what the original Westminster Confession said about church state relations now over here in Scotland and Ireland where Presbyterian churches are strong uh, in Scotland we have a Presbyterian established church uh, and we also have several other Presbyterian denominations that want to be the established church and we've got a Presbyterian denomination in Ireland the Reformed Presbyterian Church Covenanters that also believes in the state church and, and believes that that it should be it. So uh, not, none of these groups are Reconstructionist. In fact, some of the Scottish churches have passed resolutions against Reconstructionism. Um, so the the American the American Presbyterian tradition, I think, is probably a bit foreign to some of these ideas. Um, but but you know, other Presbyterian churches are much happier with some kind of church-state proximity. And, you know, as I mentioned before, there's been episodes in the history of these churches back in the 17th century, perhaps even more recently, when they have looked deliberately to the Mosaic judicial laws as models for contemporary uh, legislation. Um, so I think, I mean, I, I, I have some sympathy when I hear Reconstructionists say that there is a confessional tradition. I think they're right, but it probably isn't in America. It's probably here. However, I think it's also true to say, Jordan, as you suggested, that there is something in the air that is making these ideas extremely immediate right now. And I think it's very telling that since the Trump election, when was it, 2015, 2016 inauguration, I think there has been an overwhelming sense on the part of many conservative evangelicals in the United States that something has gone fundamentally wrong. And I think that that might that feeling might explain some of the things that we've seen in the last couple of months, uh, the response to the election result back in November. Um, I think that um, we're going to we're going to see more and more of that carry through as the, the new administration takes American society and legislation in a different direction. And even, you know, who knows what's going to happen with the Supreme Court. There's been a lot of discussion about that in the last couple of days. Um, uh, very telling that all of Trump's efforts to get Supreme Court judges that he trusted into power um, has not yet made any significant impact on the direction of American public culture or society. So, so what's going to happen? And I think that Obviously, I wrote this book as an historian, not as a prophet. Uh, I don't claim to be a prophet. Um, but I do think that more, just as this movement has been growing in popularity 
and, and, and really growing in terms of its cultural reach, not just through the books that it's publishing, but also I think especially through its presence in Amazon Prime, talk shows, things like that. I think that we're going to see this, this community make more and more of an impact. And one of the reasons why it's going to make more and more of an impact is because the people I'm writing about in the book are some of the, pu- the few people uh, within American Christianity who are thinking um, critically, creatively, and constructively about the situation they find themselves in and solutions to it. And what's more, they're not just theorists. There are thousands of people in Northern Idaho who have bought into their idea, who live in a mutually supportive community, who are part of an engaged church, who have a real sense of, of, of mutual purpose and commitment to that mutual purpose, and who, you know, who, who can send their children to study in Moscow at New St. Andrews College, can see those children get very good employment in some of the businesses that people in the church have set up, marry young, as often they seem to do, uh, and you know, and begin to settle down, and you know, it's just attrition at that point. It's only a question of time before Moscow moves from being ten percent um, members of these uh, churches to fifty percent plus one. And when it's fifty percent plus one in Moscow, or in some of the counties in northern Idaho, or in the state of Idaho, then I think we will begin to see some really interesting things happen. I'm curious if, you know, because you, you had your your eye on this movement, you said, since the 90s when you first started reading uh, Wilson's magazine. And, you know, you, you sat down to do these interviews with folks who are involved uh, in this movement. Was there anything that you learned during those interviews that surprised you? Like, wow, I didn't expect for this, you know, group to believe this or for this to be the case in this community or just anything that you just, that took you totally by surprise? Well, yeah, it's, it's a great question, uh, Brandon. I mean, I had been reading them for about 20 years before I ever went to visit their actual community. So that, you know, I had a pretty good idea of what they were about and what their, you know, what their mission was and what their values were, all those kinds of things. But I think actually going to see it was uh, quite striking. I think a- any group can present themselves in a positive way online. I mean, it's one of the tricks of the internet, isn't it? You can appear bigger, better, more exciting, better looking than you actually are, although you're both very fine fellows. Uh, I'm not casting aspersions in you know, my company today. But, um, you know, but, but you, you can look really good. You can make yourself look really good. But actually, you know, when you go there, it did look really good. You know, I, I was kind of surprised by that, that um, it was pretty much what it said on the tin. Um. So, you know, the, um, I suppose, as an, you know, writing as an historian, it's very important to maintain that critical distance and, and understand what's happening um, through the lens of, you know, the kinds of theories and approaches that we're, that we're trained um, to do. But no, I, it, it, I mean, genuinely, it, it, it was striking. I think as after that visit, what has really surprised me, though, is to see the way that these ideas are being taken up because so so much of the big media presence has happened since I spent time with these groups in 2015 and 2016, including you know the Amazon stuff or you know the um, s- some of the films or, or Netflix um, children's work, ch- children's videos and Netflix that have come out um, a- a- as well. But I think I mean I think one of the really striking things that has surprised me is the relationship that's developed between someone like James White and Douglas Wilson. 
And I haven't followed James White's career well enough to know what to make of that. But that surprised me when I saw it. Um, um, I, I think as that is, that, I think that's happening at the same time as sort of satellite projects um, around the, the Moscow-Idaho community, projects like um, Crosstalk, which is another um, uh, internet talk show. I, th I, th I think show really quite a considerable sense of self-confidence within this community. But the thing that surprised me most of all happened um, just a couple of months ago um, when um, a number of people from the Moscow-Idaho church gathered illegally in front of the Moscow-Idaho courthouse for a psalm sing, for it to sing hymns. Uh, the people in the courthouse had very kindly gone out and sprayed yellow circles on the ground so that people could gather for a psalm sing without breaching any of the COVID regulations. Uh, but those regulations were broken. People were arrested. And beautifully, it was all captured on video. And who should retweet that video? But President Trump himself. And I thought to myself, that is just extraordinary. He, here's a group that for you know 25 plus years have been critiquing politics. In fact, they'd even made fun of Donald Trump back before he was a politician in some issues of Credenda Agenda. And you know, here he was suddenly the great champion of the Moscow-Idaho community, was a person who represented almost everything that they thought was wrong about the direction of American culture. So it just, it just goes to show, I think, that you can maintain a critical position as much as you like, but there's something about this moment in um, American cultural life and American political life that draws in even people who don't want to be a part of it, even people who'd rather stand in the sidelines and propose an alternative. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. All these, almost all strange bedfellows together. Uh, I would have never put all that together, but I, I'd love to chat more on this. I think probably our listeners would think so too. So what I'll tell you is go get the book, read the book. And then uh, I know you'll probably really enjoy it. And I'm sure Crawford will do more interviews in the future where we can learn more, even more about some of the background and the backstory and some of the details of it. But I've I've had a ton of fun. Crawford, do you have any online presence, websites, or anything people can follow you and your work? Um, I've got a Twitter account, which I keep turning off and turning on, so it's not very reliable. But when it's on, it's um, at GribbenC, G-R-I-B-B-E-N-C. Um, one thing I would say, Jordan, if you don't mind, I've got no, we're talking about this book today. I've got another book coming out in August called The Rise and Fall of Christian Ireland. And, um, you know, if, if any of your listeners are part of the um, three billion uh, people who claim Irish descent, uh, most of whom live in Boston, um, they, they might be interested in getting that. So it's called The Rise and Fall of Christian Ireland. And it's a long history of how Christianity came to Ireland in the fourth century, fifth century, uh, and what happened to it uh, until the present day. Excellent. I, I have no doubt that it will be of the highest quality and you should definitely check it out as well. So everybody's been listening. We, we thank you for tuning in. This has been the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon.